You okay there, Miles? I don't know, man. I just cannot wrap my head around the origins of the high evolutionary. That is entirely understandable. In fact, I have actually prepared something in anticipation of precisely this eventuality. Really? Yeah. So, you know Mad Libs, right? Yeah. Okay, so we're going to take those rules and we're going to apply them to Marvel continuity. Just give me whatever answers you can think of off the top of your head. Sure. Okay, comics-friendly career. Geneticist. Bad role model. Mr. Sinister. Non-human sentience. Mutants. Oh, mutants are technically human, sorry. Uh, okay, then, uh, inhumans. Perfect. Location. Wondergore Mountain. Gonna need another race of non-human sentience. Uh, can I go with moloids? Absolutely. We're taking a big tent approach here. Uh, environmental hazard. Uh, well, if it's a big tent approach, ghosts. Ghosts it is. Another environmental hazard. Let's go sciency this time. Uranium. Animal. Spider. Monster. Werewolf. Unconventional hobby. Uh, baby swapping. Okay, and now, let's plug them all in. Renegade geneticist Herbert Wyndham, who may or may not be the partial namesake of the first premiere of Queensland, Australia, was living in his mom's basement when, influenced by the works of Mr. Sinister, he attempted to develop a means of artificially accelerating evolution. Wyndham was rejected by his academic peers until a disguised, inhuman, approached him in a back alley to offer Wyndham the key to unlocking the genetic code. Along with his BFF and fellow scientist Jonathan Drew, Wyndham then made a beeline for scenic Wundagore Mountain, where he enslaved the subterranean, Moloids, and forced them to build him an advanced research facility. Unfortunately, Wundagore was infested with ghosts and uranium, which collectively made short work of the Drew family. Jonathan was possessed by a 6th century sorcerer, and his daughter Jessica ended up with radiation poisoning, which Jonathan attempted to cure by injecting her with spider juice. After Jonathan had left Wundagore, Wyndham proceeded to build himself a suit of fancy armor to keep him safe from the werewolf that had killed Drew's wife, enabling Wyndham to safely pursue his passion for baby swapping. What?! I'm J. Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 96 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So this time it is the Evolutionary War. It sure is. Uh, where to even start? I should say, by the way, that the cold open, that's the actual history of the High Evolutionary. That's actually just his early history. The rest is every bit as ridiculous. He's also got like a pink and white robot suit and a big fin on his head. So if you haven't seen the character, that really adds to the portrait that we're painting here. He's also responsible for like 95% of the Maximoff family tree continuity bullshit. So, that you know, there's that. Yup. Yeah, he is a special gentleman and we will explore that at much greater length. Evolutionary War was an 11-part crossover across a bunch of annuals. I think it included X-Factor, Punisher, Silver Surfer, New Mutants, Fantastic Four, Amazing Spider-Man, Uncanny X-Men, Web of Spider-Man, West Coast Avengers, Spectacular Spider-Man, and The Avengers. Uh, don't forget the uh, What If that was later based on it and ALF. Wait, what? ALF. Yeah, seriously. Marvel was doing an ALF comic at the time, and it had an annual that summer, so they figured, what the hell? So, like, Alf is going to summer camp for reasons, and the evolutionary is like, hey, I gotta talk to you. And he's like, hey, talk to me in two days. And so he comes back, and then he's like, so you're a Melmachian on Earth. I know all about planet Melmac, and so I'm gonna de-evolve you into primordial ooze if you mess with human evolution. And Alf says, okay. I've never actually seen or read any Alf media, but I feel like I would have been more aware of that if it had been the premise. Mainly, he just was in a sitcom and threatened to eat cats a lot. 
But at the end, uh, it was all a dream, of course, and Alf wakes up and says, Holy Hannah and her sisters! What a nightmare! That's the last time I read 11 Marvel annuals before going to bed. Welp. I I mean, I can kind of sympathize with the guy. So... This 11-part story is mostly basically standalones about the high evolutionary enacting his high evolutionary agenda. They've also each got backup stories delving into his secret origins, which again are just batshit ridiculous. Yeah, and uh, we should clarify up front, we're not going to be covering the entire evolutionary war event because honestly, most of it is not relevant at all to X-Men. So what we'll be doing is we'll be covering the X-Men, X-Factor, and New Mutants annuals that were part of this, each of which has sort of a big story at the front with high evolutionary stuff. A smaller story about the characters, but then we're going to be skipping the part that Jay just mentioned, where it's high evolutionary history. So if you want to read the entire evolutionary war, that's ambitious, and we applaud that. Okay, so what was the high evolutionary up to in the other books? Is there anything that's going to be pertinent? Nothing that's really going to be pertinent. I mean, he was really all over the place. He was, like, getting rid of drug cartels and trying to steal the Terrigen mists and, like, building a genetic bomb. That one actually applied to a few annuals. It was going to evolve all life on Earth, but that's mostly Spider-Man Avengers stuff, so we can safely skip that. I think Hercules died preventing it from happening at the end, but then he got better. He also spends at least one of them running around New York sterilizing what he describes as undesirables, which kind of brings me to a point I feel like we really need to address if we're going to talk about the High Evolutionary. And that's the fact that his tactics are actually a pretty direct reflection of the history of eugenics in the real world, including the United States. And this stuff, you know, forced sterilization of members of marginalized populations based on things like disability, socioeconomic class, mental illness, minority status, criminal history. Like, that's something we tend to associate now with Nazis, but it was practiced on a pretty wide scale legally, like with government sanction in the United States well into the 1980s, which is when this book was coming out. I don't know state by state, but I know there were something like 27 states with state-sanctioned eugenics programs in the late 50s. I know the one in Oregon lasted until the early 80s. And that's actually just the official stuff. So like, for example, there were still forced sterilization going on in California prisons in 2010 with the scant comfort that at least by that point, it was like really, really blatantly illegal. So the high evolutionary, if you're not familiar with this, looks like a really over-the-top supervillain. But the stuff he's doing and the relatively focused scale he's doing it on is weirdly and unsettlingly parallel to actual shit that was going on not very long before this issue came out. Yeah, that is pretty messed up. And I mean, until we were doing our research for this, I had not realized just the scale in the real world that stuff had been going on. Oh my god, yeah. It was a really big thing in the early 20th century that fell to some extent out of popularity after World War II because it was so closely associated with the Nazis and the Holocaust. Right. But I mean, yeah, it was still going on for a really long time. And there are actually still like active ongoing debates in the medical community about forced sterilization of people with really severe mental and developmental disabilities. It's a really disturbing, really screwed up and really important bit of history, I think, to know about because the idea that this is something that only happens in Nazi Germany or like comic books is kind of a dangerous misapprehension. That's fair. Thankfully for the uh, ability to read the comics and not, you know, cry the whole time, The High Evolutionary mostly does super ridiculous stuff. The High Evolutionary is really bad at his job, which is good for all of life on Earth. So I guess let's start with, I think, maybe my favorite of the set, which is the X-Factor annual, in which the High Evolutionary is so ridiculous that Apocalypse shows up for a supervillain intervention. Oh, man. I mean, I'm going to love any issue where Apocalypse just talks a lot, and um, he totally does in this one, and I fully approve. So this story... You just like doing the voice. I I love doing the voice. I could do an entire podcast that was just the voice. I mean, it would be short episodes, but still... Actually, listeners, I don't have time to do that. 
But if I ever did, then I would. Maybe someday. Maybe someday. Maybe it can be a milestone goal. So, yeah, uh, this story, the lead story, I should say, an X Factor annual, because like we mentioned, there are multiple stories in each one, is called Unnatural Selection, which mainly made me think about the chapter in Chrono Trigger of the same title. God, which, I love that game. Which chapter was that? Uh, it was in 65 million BC. There were like the Reptites and like yes. Ayla and stuff. Oh, it was great. Oh, um, man, that game is so great. One of my very favorites. You should all go play it mm-hmm. and then come back like... 60 hours later and listen to this episode it's a short game maybe like 20 25 yeah only if you're not going for all the endings well and this opens very much in medias res i mean both louise simonson and chris claremont love doing that and this issue is totally an example of it and it opens with a group of people called the purifiers now we have seen purifiers before these are different purifiers these are unrelated purifiers they do not work for the striker campaign they in fact work for the high evolutionary And they're in these subterranean caverns of New York, which are sort of an ongoing thing in the Marvel Universe. I assume that they're not actually real. My take was always that there are subterranean caverns everywhere. Um, Dude, you literally grew up at sea level. You know that's not true. Well, in the Marvel Universe, it's just that the ones under New York have a lot more going on because there are various superheroes and supervillains, you know, messing with them. Okay, well, in this case, the supervillains messing with them are the purifiers. These are different purifiers from the ones we've seen previously. Those were the purifiers who worked, I believe, for the Striker campaign. And and God Loves Man Kills, yeah. Right. Now, these purifiers work for the High Evolutionary. Their leaders who keep on showing up in all of these annuals are Purge and Stack. Okay, Stack sounds kind of like a real name. I actually have a theory about Stack, but I will get to that much, much later. <laughs> okay. And they are running around attempting to forcibly sterilize, somewhat less grotesquely than it could be because they've got some kind of magical zappy guns, uh, the population of subterranean moloids running around here. Yeah, so these are, in fact, mole men who live deep underground because it's the Marvel Universe, and of course you have mole men. I love them. They are distinct from Mole Man, who is actually a supervillain in an entirely different story. Well, Mole Man does hang out with the mole men sometimes. Sometimes. I don't Uh, believe he actually is one of them, though. No, no, he's got the same weird little, like, slit sunglasses, though. And they are aghast. Uh, The purifiers are aghast because the mole men are actually fighting back. And not only that, but they've managed to rally some of the other big, cool subterranean monsters who hang out in the caverns under New York. And the purifiers did not sign up for this. I love the dialogue here as a stack says to purge. It will pain our master to learn of the inadequacies of his purifier troops, that they cannot defeat barehanded imbeciles. Imbeciles, perhaps, but some of them breathe fire. (laughs) Which, you know, it's it's point. It it is. But yeah, I mean, I'm thinking like the purifiers, you mentioned they didn't sign up for this. Like, I'm reminded of people working for Hydra back in Team America. Elsie, what's her name? Yeah, exactly. And they're like, man, I just wanted a steady nine to five with some decent benefits. I didn't think I'd be fighting like fire breathing mole men and underground dinosaurs. Can you imagine how bad the high evolutionary's health plan probably is? Forced genetic counseling every other week. Like the only one that's probably worse is Mr. Sinister's, which is literally just that you have five clone backups. Like it's just paranoia play rules. <laughs> Perfect. And so, yeah, they're, they're having this big fight. And there's this one moloid, this one subterranean that doesn't look like the others. He's sort of bigger and taller and he's wearing a toga instead of a loincloth. And I'm- most pertinently, he's bright orange. And so Toga Steve here gets shot by one of the purifiers and screams. We should add that his name is not actually Toga Steve. Miles just named him that. I named him that the first panel he showed up in in my head, and now I can't make it stop. Well, we're going to call him Toga Steve. It's a good name. And you should, too. 
He screams, and then all the other Moloids scream, and then a bunch of people all over the Marvel Universe scream. Right, we've got Psylocke, Artie Maddox, Dr. Druid. Remember Dr. Druid? I love Dr. Druid. Franklin Richards, Rachel Summers, Caliban, Emma Frost, and of course, the High Evolutionary. I actually really like this trope. Like, when you want to show that something is psychically important, you cut to, like, every psychic in the Marvel Universe freaking out. And when you want to show that something's cosmically important, you cut to Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau video conferencing with Jimmy Carter about it. Man, if Peter Corbeau was a telepath, he would be in every one of those scenes. Yeah. I mean, I like the idea of him just having really good monitoring equipment and so being in all of those scenes anyway. <laughs> like, he doesn't need superpowers. He has science. His computer monitors get psychic nosebleeds? No, no, they're too good for that because, again, he's perfect. Ah, good point. You mentioned that Caliban was one of the people that caught the psychic scream because he's kind of a mutant detector person. Right. And as you may recall, Caliban is currently working with Apocalypse. He decided that he was going to change his affiliation based on Apocalypse's promises to soup him up a bit. And Caliban is the one who is able, because of his powers, to identify the source of the scream as specifically a mutant moloid. Now, Apocalypse is intrigued by this. He's into evolution and he likes the idea of the strong. How he identifies the strong is kind of bizarre and context-specific. It's not really that consistent, which is part of why it's so funny that he's the foil to the high evolutionary here. But he's into this, and he is dedicated, so he decides that they need to go intervene. Meanwhile, above ground, X-Factor is helping to rebuild the Empire State Building, which got wrecked when ship crashed. Specifically because, you know, she's the telekinetic of the gang, Marvel Girl is mostly repairing the Empire State Building, except that she's hit with the psychic backlash from this Moloid and collapses. She says it was a telepathic burst. It's the first sign since her return that her telepathic powers, or at least sensitivity, is starting to come back. Yeah, and I'm actually kind of surprised that this wasn't played as a bigger deal in this issue, because she was pretty traumatized when she lost her telepathy when she came back from the bottom of Jamaica Bay. Well, what she says here is, well, I guess I must still be, you know, a sensitive to some degree, which I would sort of put as a category below active telepaths, people who can pick up on big sense signals, but not casually read thoughts or instigate anything. I guess so. I'm just saying if I was Jean Grey, I would be very excited right now. She does have other business to attend to, like rebuilding the Empire State Building, fighting purifiers, and the build-up to Inferno. So speaking of all of those things, let's put this in time context a little bit, because Beast is here, and Beast is still in his non-furry, non-blue form, which means this must take place a little before where we are in continuity, where the whole infection thing turned him blue again. Right. This is specifically after the apocalypse fight, after they're living on ship, before infection. And so X-Factor figures, well, we should check this out. I mean, clearly something big is going on. Let's see if we can help. They investigate, they go in through the subways, and they stumble into an old civilization that Iceman points out reminds him of fighting grotesque back in 1968's X-Men 41, just in case you, dear reader, have forgotten. <laughs> in case you forgot that issue that you almost assuredly have not read, Bobby Drake remembers. Oh, as man, does Pepper how much better would it be? If he were remembering fighting Metoxa the Lotva Man, which he had still not done at this point. That the would issue require, that was teased and then never written until that one holiday special. That would require a lot of editorial footnotes. I think the editor would just be like, dude, I don't even know, in the caption. Yeah, this is where the editorial footnotes degenerate into, and this is why I drink. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, they're like, hey, old civilization. Oh, and pile of subterranean corpses. That's not good. They refer to the Moloids as subterraneans pretty regularly here, which kept on getting the Might Be Giant song, the Mesopotamians, stuck in my head. So if you know that song, you're welcome. It's now <laughs> stuck in yours too. Join me in this purgatory. Or join us, which is the name of it, the Might Be Giants album. Oh, but man. not the one that that song's off of. 
but yeah, and Cyclops is like, wait, a pile of corpses, um, did the Marauders do this? Because, of course, that's where their go-to is whenever they see a slaughter. Well, and underground. Like, this is within the Marauders' reasonable operating radius. True, as as yeah. Know. But there are still quite a few living Moloids, and in fact, down deep below, the Purifiers have grabbed them and have rounded them up and are throwing them into this portal that leads to kind of an underwater sterilization bath. I'm not sure how that works, I'm just going to go ahead and say, science. Yeah, the high evolutionary does his own science thing, and we just don't ask too many questions because the answers are all like Wondergar Mountain and ghosts and the Maximoff family. There are roads it's better not to start down. Exactly. So as they're doing this, Toga Steve, who had been knocked unconscious, wakes up and screams again, and all the Moloids suddenly go from being totally docile to attacking. So it's pretty clear by this point that he's the one that's kind of pushing them into this frenzy. So Purge, Commander Purge, does he have a title? Um, I'm Dr. Just... Purge, Mr. Purge, Constable Purge. Uh, yeah, let's go with that one. He's got an actual title in the comics. I don't remember what it was, and it doesn't actually matter. So Constable Purge decides that this is some bullshit. He is going to basically call home, request for some better weapons to deal with the Subterraneans, the High Evolutionary who is hanging out in his space base like you do. It's sort of like another big moon. Why the hell not? Yeah, well, because then people can say that's no moon, and everybody wants to say that. Do they? Yes. Do they really? Yes. Really? I do. That's no moon. Okay, now I'm satisfied. Miles, the definition of privilege is assuming that your priorities apply universally. Well, it's half my show. You know, I get to say, right? And when given say, what you say is? That's no moon. Uh, so anyway, Purge is asking for weaponry because he's like, hey, I know we were just going to sterilize these dudes, but now they're punching us a lot. And the High Evolutionary, as he's saying sure, is then confronted by everybody's favorite big blue meanie. Ensabanur. And Ensabanur being Ensabanur, he has to start off with a fucking brag track. Yeah, like, no sooner does he teleport in than... As long as mankind has existed, I am. War and strife have been mankind's proving ground. I have encouraged these things to ensure that the denizens of that world below grow strong. Can you imagine this dude in, like, elementary school? You know, Rolka, like, Frank. Here. Mary. Here. And Sabanor. I am Apocalypse! It's like, dude, and Sabah, just say here. Yeah, we're gonna have to get to algebra at some point today. Only <laughs> got 50 minutes. But yeah, so... These equations are not gonna factor themselves. Could you declaim on your own time, please? <laughs> and there's just him, like, during recess on the playground, just talking about how he's gonna bring war and strife to the kindergarten class. Yeah. <laughs> Their kindergartners are doing algebra. I'm really impressed with these kids. Well, you know, he was in the gifted class because he's Apocalypse. He's always very intelligent. Right, right. Uh-huh. And I'm just imagining him choosing, like, the four horsemen of the kindergarten. This is a Nickelodeon show waiting to happen. Oh, God, the four horsemen of the playground? <laughs> I love everything about this. This is the whole thing. It could be that he picks them. Like, this could be like a captain's choosing teams in PE thing. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. He tries so... to choose his horsemen, but, um, you know, the other captain gets the one he wanted for, like, pestilence. <laughs> is the other captain it's the just, high evolutionary? The pestilence would just be the kid who's always kind of sniffly. <laughs> exactly. Sort of snot down the front of their shirt. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, okay, so best idea for a pilot we've ever had aside... Yeah, Apocalypse basically starts chiding the High Evolutionary, saying, Dude, you are short-sighted. I've been around for thousands of years. You're comparatively very young. You're impatient, and your plans are dumb. You know, he's not wrong. 
But the High Evolutionary will hear none of it, and so, of course, they get in a big fight. The High Evolutionary blasts Apocalypse and zaps them both out into space, where they have a big philosophical argument while shooting lasers and changing size and growing robot parts. This is everything I want out of an Apocalypse scene. So, we should talk a little bit about the High Evolutionary's tactics and what he's actually shooting for. The High Evolutionary's thing is twofold, the first of which is that he wants to protect the evolution of humanity. He wants to sort of propagate it. And he does this via the somewhat unconventional means of, you know, things like sterilizing underground mole men, which doesn't really seem to contribute very directly to his cause, since, among other things, they're not actively interbreeding with humans. He also really wants a peer group. He's shooting for the day when humans will finally, you know, rise to stand beside him. And he's doing this again by taking out anything that might conceivably be dangerous to them, and by also rapidly artificially evolving up animals and teaching them Arthurian chivalry. Like, this is how he approaches these goals, which, um... Yeah, look up the Knights of Wondegore. It's, um, weird. I think we did a cold open on them once. I think so. um, Basically, his means in no way actually further his ends. And I think that's kind of how this 11-part annual event works, is that in each issue, he's just trying to do a different thing. And if you look at them all together in aggregate, it's really he's unclear. He's just flailing desperately through 11 issues. <laughs> he basically is, yeah. And I should say, Terry Shoemaker does the art in this annual. It's not Walter Simonson like usual. And he actually makes Apocalypse's weird size-changing robotic appendage growing powers look really cool. So during this fight, like, well done, Terry Shoemaker. Well, I mean, he grows a spacesuit and it's pretty silly looking. It's awesome. They're not mutually exclusive categories. I mean, with Apocalypse, I feel like the ideal form is ridiculous and epic at once. You are absolutely correct. So I really just want to go through some of this dialogue, because as they punch each other and laser each other and robot pincher arm each other, they're having this sort of debate. All I do is to test humankind, mutant kind, to provide my own form of natural selection. A trial by fire in which humanity grows strong as a species, or dies. As I suspect, you talk of death while I speak of life. I will help humanity advance, as I have advanced, to live to become all they can be. I am like a benevolent parent who makes the choices for those who are too immature to choose for themselves. You seek to force humanity's change, to remake it in your own image. Your own evolution was forced, and see what you've become. Disembodied. For all your power, with only that armor to give you the semblance of substance. You are a creature of the living dead, who can no longer reproduce himself, the ultimate genetic dead end. What I love about this is that Apocalypse is right that the High Evolutionary is ridiculous, but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing two people who are trying to mess with evolution in very strange ways, but it's really cool to see Apocalypse just get to be awesome and just get to win this philosophical conflict. Meanwhile, in the caverns below New York, X-Factor finds themselves embroiled in the fight with the Mole Men, who at this point are attacking indiscriminately. Yeah, I mean, they figure, hey, X-Factor looks human. Humans have been doing this to us. I mean, they're not exactly thinking straight. I don't blame them. Well, they specifically don't think verbally. That's established slightly later in this issue, that they entirely think basically empathically with feelings and images. But Gene does manage to connect to Toga Steve, the Moloid telepath, and get a feel for what's going on. I guess Toga Steve was born that way. He could control suggestible people, which is to say, like, his entire species, from the start, but he sort of 
overlapped with them emotionally and mentally. He didn't know where like he ended and they began. It's like a sort of very primitive and less objectively evil version of Empath. Yeah, especially the way Empath was portrayed in New Mutant 62, totally. And so, yeah, the purifiers, just as X-Factor and the Moloids have made peace, attack, of course. And at this point, they're basically out for blood. They're super mad at the Moloids for giving them such a problem. And X-Factor helps them fight back. And there's a great big war, and uh, Terry Shoemaker draws it awesomely. The purifiers are about to kill the telepath when Apocalypse and the High Evolutionary zap in to continue their argument. Apocalypse points out correctly that this telepath is proof that no, the Moloids are in fact still evolving. They're not a dead end. What you're doing is ridiculous and misguided, which again, he's right. The High Evolutionary concedes the point. Hey, it's like uh, Ariel from the Coconut Grove. Kind of, yes. Actually, almost even powers-wise, it's pretty close. I'm just saying. And so, yeah, the purifiers get both defeated and then called off. And the telepath, who calls himself Val Orr telepathically as he sort of develops rudimentary language to thank X-Factor. Sure, why not? But we know he's Toga Steve. Says, hey, I would love to come with you. Thanks for the offer. But I need to stay and help my people. There's also a backup story this issue about the X-Factor kids and ship looking through a weirdly detailed photo album of the original five X-Men. It's totally pointless and it does not tell you anything that you do not already know, so we're going to skip it. It is, however, sort of a little advertisement for an upcoming miniseries we will be covering called Exterminators, which is about them as they head off and kind of go to boarding school, but mostly end up in the middle of Inferno. Yeah, they're supposed to go to Exeter, right? Yeah, my brother went to Exeter. Okay, so next time we see him, we need to just ask him a bunch of like weird oblique questions and try to figure out whether Exeter actually has a substantial mutant population. Did you happen to go to school with a girl that would slide off everything and had an amazing fashion sense? So Alex, tell us. Could any of your classmates literally fly? (laughs) So, yeah, that's the X-Factor annual. Now, the New Mutants annual, which is the next one, like, chapter-wise in the Evolutionary War, is totally different. Right. Now, the annuals are all drawn by artists other than the regular series artists as a standard. And this one brings back one of our very, very favorite incidental New Mutants artists. That is the amazing, splendid, spectacular, fantastic. I love her so much, June Brigman. I love June Brigman. Welcome back, June Brigman. Like, I haven't actually, but if I had a pen on me, I would be doodling her name in little hearts in the margins of my outline right now, (laughs) because she is so good. Like, she reminds me of a lot of what I liked about Bob McCloud originally, Um, the the way he draws teenagers, the way he differentiates the characters. But, like, she's technically so, so terrific. It's weird to me when people are talking about artists of this era that her name isn't always in those conversations, because technically, expressionistically, just narratively, she was one of the best artists working in comics in the late 80s. She was so good. She's still alive. She's still doing stuff. Yeah. And so, yes, she gets to draw lots of awesome things. And this issue opens with some X-Factor characters, actually. It does. Also with Stack and Purge. Um, Oh, those guys. Right, again. But the X-Factor characters are ones who we met way, way, way back in in the first handful of issues of X-Factor, I think. These are gentlemen named Bulk and Glowworm, and they are two mutants who have been exposed to huge amounts of radiation. And last that we saw them, which again would have been about two years ago in publishing time, were dying of radiation poisoning, but apparently have not yet. Yes, yes, they're just presumably suffering a great deal. But the purifiers are enacting yet another phase of the evolutionary's plan, which is to depower mutants with powers so dangerous that humanity might be endangered. And, you know, storing up gigantic amounts of radiation and poisoning everything around you? Okay, I can see it. It's such an arbitrary choice, though, because, I mean, there are so many more powerful and more dangerous mutants running around right now. Yeah, I mean, I figure he's just checking them off a list, and Bulk was early on in the list, you know, let her be, so and eventually Glowworm just he'll... happened to be around? Exactly. Eventually he'll get to, like, you know, Xavier or whatever. 
see, this is, again, another way in which the high evolutionary plans are ridiculous because they're so pointed. Like, he is planning to save humanity by individually tracking down and depowering mutants who might be dangerous to the Earth. Yeah. One at a time, with a huge staff, complicated machinery. Like, he's not even going to get to the H's before, like, 2012. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he's immortal by this point, so maybe he's not too worried about it. Yeah, he's also just kind of dumb as a box of rocks. Again, I have a theory about the high evolutionary that we will get to when we get to Uncanny X-Men, which is the place where I think it's best illustrated. Okay, so the purifiers do manage to kidnap Bulk and Glowworm, because, you know, superheroes, these characters are not, and they depower them, which means that the radiation that's within their bodies starts immediately rapidly killing them. And it's interesting, Purge and Stack actually have a conversation about, you know, wondering why the evolutionary doesn't just kill them instead of sentencing them to death by removing their powers. And Stack says, well, no, no, no. His deal is that he never kills unless it's absolutely necessary. Basically, the high evolutionary operates by Batman ethics. He will mortally injure you, but then leave you to die slowly and painfully. Batman's a dick. So is the high evolutionary. Right? Hmm. I've never seen them in the same place at the same time, I guess. Maybe. Yeah, maybe one of those amalgam. I haven't read a lot of the DC Marvel crossovers and amalgam stuff yet. We'll get there eventually. I'm actually really excited about them. So, yes, this is immensely depressing because Bulk and Glowworm are actually really sympathetic characters, and they've been dealt a horrible, horrible hand by life and in every story they've appeared in. So I'm mad at the Purifiers right now. Well, the Purifiers aren't mad at you. The Purifiers are busy going on with their important work of tracking down the dangerous mutants of Earth one at a time very slowly, and the next one on their list is, in fact, Magma. Magma, to recap, of course, has the power to do a bunch of, like, volcanic, tectonic stuff, which could certainly demolish the Earth. Does the High Evolutionary ever go after Magneto? Because it really seems like he should, based on this logic. I suspect he eventually would have. You know, yeah. maybe. And so, yeah, they're like, okay, well, let's find this person. I think person. he lives on Counter-Earth now. The High Evolutionary, not Magneto. Last time we saw him was in the second Uncanny Avengers volume, I believe, yeah. Yep. In yet another horrible Maximoff origin story. <laughs> it's true, it's story true. Storyline. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's consistent. Yeah, so as the Purifiers are doing terrible things, the New Mutants are hanging out at the Xavier School training. There's a charming, charming training scene with Cannonball and Warlock in the Danger Room, and Warlock basically playing Pop Goes the Weasel, you know, with himself as a jack-in-the-box around Cannonball, which sounds really creepy when I describe it, but is actually pretty charming on the page. Yes, he makes Cannonball crash and be embarrassed, and it's entertaining. When their classmates run in with, you know, letter in hand, and Magneto shows up and is just furious because it's the Danger Room, and guys, that place is dangerous. It's right there in the name. Did Come you not read on. the sign? How long have you guys been going to this school anyway? How many of you have died? How it come really? <laughs> but yeah, just so, one technically so far. Well, so far, give them time. So far, but yeah, the letter that they have is another letter from Magma, from Amara Aquila, from Nova Roma, the stuck in the past Roman colony in the Amazon. But they don't get to share it because Magneto is furious and he takes this out on Danielle Moonstar Mirage. Danielle, your Mirage power is the least useful of any of my remaining students were you to inadvertently find yourself in danger. Therefore, you must hone it as well as your physical abilities to a perfection that exceeds those of the other students who possess more physically aggressive powers. So I guess Danny is the new Doug? Well, the thing is, that's what everyone should have done with Doug. They should have trained him, but they didn't. So, you know, I mean, Magneto's certainly not wrong. But, like, they're going on about how our powers are useless. Like, it's like that episode of Parks and Rec where Jerry leaves and then everyone's just really mean to Tom. <laughs> it kind of is. You're right. Anyway, 
So the New Mutants, as Mirage trains really hard, read the letter, and yeah, it's some stuff we've heard of before, which is that Amara has, in fact, been forcibly engaged to a dude she's never met by her father. And she's still hanging out in Novaroma with Empath, you know, on whom she obviously has a raging crush. Yeah. But in this scene, I want to talk about the art, because June Brigman's ability to capture body language is stellar. So there's like a frustrated sunspot, he's mad at Magneto as usual, kind of with his cheeks squished against his hand as he leans against the side of the couch. There's Rain sort of slouched at the edge of it as she reads the letter. There's Liana distractedly playing with her hair. I mean, these characters just feel real. They feel like people. There's none of that awkward sort of supermodel posing you see in a lot of 90s comics, uh, or a lot of present-day comics for that matter. It's just so well-staged. I wish she would do more stuff. While the new mutants are languishing in Westchester, magma is raging through the mountains outside of Nova Roma. So Louis Simonson has realized by this point what Claremont realized so late in his own run of New Mutants, which is that Magma should be, like, super passionate all the time, and her dialogue should reflect that. Stupid, asinine, backward part of the world. Ancient Incas and lost Romans mixing it up, creating an even loster civilization. Worst of both worlds, somebody ought to blast you into the 20th century. And uh, Empath shows up like, whoa, what's up with the, like, you know, crashing and burning going on over here? And she uh, explains what's going on, and that she's trying to make herself seem so dangerous she won't be a valuable bride, but her father just told her that makes her even more valuable, and so she's super pissed off. And Empath basically offers to mind control her father into letting her go, and she starts to calm down. And we see at this point the High Evolutionary's texts who notice this and point out that Empath is in fact unconsciously using his powers on her. This will become relevant and super awkward much later. So the purifiers just teleport right there because they have sciencey stuff and zap her and take her away. An empath tries to stop them, but Stack is able to just shake off his powers. He's got some kind of armor. Which is impressive. And so Empath uses the radio equipment that Novaroma has to call his old mentor and boss, the White Queen, Emma Frost. You know, you call her the White Queen, but Magneto's slavish adherence to his fuchsia palette seems to be rubbing off on her here. Yeah, that's true. She's sort of got this very fashionable, like, pink and black and white matching outfit. So Emma Frost should be a fashionista, and it always bugs me when people only show her in an improperly fitted bustier. Like, she should be wearing all sorts of very carefully coordinated outfits, so it makes me happy when she does. Well, I mean, I, I get her adherence to the color scheme, actually. That's something that I've always kind of liked. But I like the idea that she and Magneto have sort of become the mean girls of the Hellfire Club. This is sort of an on Wednesdays we wear pink thing. <laughs> I love that. So, yes, she does, in fact, get in touch with Magneto who promptly kicks the new mutants out to talk to her. They, of course, listen at the door and overhear because they are meddling kids in every sense. And when he leaves to go consult with the Hellfire Club to figure out what to do, they decide we can't trust him. He expressly forbade us to use our powers or else he would, like, murder us in the face and expressly forbade us to leave. But whatever. Yeah, we have dopey graduation costumes and damn it, we're going to wear them. Yeah. So this becomes yet another example of the new This mutants. is why they can't sit at the lunch table with um, Magneto and Emma Frost, by the way. <laughs> exactly. This becomes yet another example of the new mutants going off and risking their lives expressly against Magneto's wishes, which just makes him more and more angry and messed up and closer and closer to being a supervillain yet again. Well, he isn't aware of that this time. He doesn't know. But speaking of risking their lives, I want to talk about Mirage's other power set here, the Valkyrie powers and how they tie in in this issue. Because they show up in the Purifier headquarters, which Liana is somehow able to locate precisely instantly. And Mirage immediately first sees a death sign above Bulk and Glowworm, which makes sense. They're dying. It's part of her Valkyrie power set. And then she's like, yeah, but that's kind of over everyone because it's a super dangerous context. 
her powers have become functionally useless because the new mutants are in mortal danger 90% of the time. I think it's also just a change in the way that these powers are being written. They seem to trigger more often at this point. Later on, the New Mutants are going to go to Asgard, and we're going to deal with this a little bit more, where I think it's handled more interestingly at the very least. But yeah, for now, it's weird. So they fight the Purifiers. Magic cheerfully ports a bunch of them to Limbo, which is her default mode of dealing with bad guys these days. Limbo is building up quite a population of X-Men antagonists. Yeah, well, it's also pretty messed up. I mean, that's almost a death sentence when she sends somebody to Limbo. Like, they're probably going to get torn apart by demons. It might just be eternal torment. I mean, either way, the book doesn't comment on it very often, just how dark that is. And so I really like years later when a bunch of the people she did send there come back to fight the new mutants. Like, it's a nice acknowledgement of that. Mirage tries to use her powers on Stack and discovers that what he is most afraid of is this sort of mutated xenomorph-looking flesh monster, which is what he's convinced humanity will turn into without the high evolutionary's guidance because the purifiers are ridiculous and probably also believe in chemtrails. (laughs) Probably. Maybe there's tinfoil on those weird headpieces they wear. Maybe it actually works, and that's how they're able to resist empath. It could very well be the case. And so, yeah, the fight continues, and the depowering machine that Magma had been hooked up to that had not yet started, Mirage gets thrown against it and zapped really hard. Fortunately for her, Bulk and Glowworm, who are actively dying at this point, notice that the depowering machine has a switch with three distinct positions. And while the position it's on now clearly depowers mutants, and the central position is neutral, there is a third position in which it has not yet been placed, so they switch it over and turn it on, and something happens to Mirage. Yeah. Now, what also happens here is that Bulk and Glowworm, that was the last they had to give to the world, and they die, but they die kind of satisfied. Bulk saying, Not such a bad way to go. After all... To be fair, they got about two more years than we were expecting. Yeah, but man, I really like these characters. I just feel so shitty for them every time they show up, and then they die painfully, and it's sad. Right, I want them to get cured and survive and get, like, I don't know, a chinchilla farm or something. (laughs) I'm trying to think of, like, the most non-violent, chill, soft, cuddly fate. We'll have the recess horsemen of the not apocalypse. Not like not like for fire. Like they're just there for pet. They raise pet. Oh right, yeah, yeah. So yeah. we have we have the recess uh, horsemen of apocalypse pilot, and this will be like the Nick Junior pilot. We also present at the same no, time. No, no. This will be like a reality show. This will be Vulcan Glowworm trying to get their chinchilla breeding business going in this difficult economy as an unconventional couple somewhere in I I don't know where you raise chinchillas. I'm gonna say Utah. Yeah, sure. Okay, so the chinchillas of Utah. (laughs) (laughs) With Balkan Glowworm. Yes. Perfect. Yes. Okay. Or they could host it. Like, they could go visit other people who breed small, inoffensive, fuzzy creatures and just pet them and talk to them and stuff. And that could be the show every week. This sounds very soothing. I actually really like this. (laughs) Yes. I would watch that show. Uh, Well, hopefully that is, in fact, what happens, that maybe they're not dead and they can do this after. So the fight continues. And you remember that uh, sort of weird flesh monster that was Stack's greatest fear? Yeah. Mirage manifests that again. But for real. This time, it is a solid three-dimensional physical object, and it proceeds to attack the purifiers. Whoops. Um, she immediately goes up against Purge. The flesh monster disappears. And there's a horde of demons, because Purge was raised super fundamentalist, and he worries that currently following the high evolutionary may put him in some immortal trouble, which it will, but not for the reasons that he thinks. Yeah. Danielle quickly figures out what's going on, which is that her powers now just work differently. She manifests the things she used to, but physically, but she can only manifest one at a time. Well, her powers got dialed up. That's apparently what that setting on the High Evolutionary's machine lever did. There's the turn off powers, the leave powers alone, and the make powers more powerful thing. I guess he does that sometimes, too. Sure, why not? Yeah. 
And so to make the demons go away, because they have now started attacking the new mutants themselves, she's like, okay, what can I make? What can I make? What can I make? Hey, I remember I can create my greatest desire, which at this very moment is the spirit lance, the spear I used back in the Asgardian Wars. Because it was awesome. So that appears in her hand, the demons go away, and the new mutants quickly rescue Magma and get the hell out of there. Um, just barely overlapping with the Hellfire Club's inner circle who show up to fight in their best fancy battle lingerie. Yeah, I actually really like Shaw at this point, Sebastian Shaw. He's just wearing, like, tiny, tiny briefs and a sash. I mean, wouldn't you? If I had that kind of physique, I probably would. And thus, everything is okay. We get a nice little scene of the new mutants hanging out with Magma, being very grateful to see her again. And what is it with Magma's dynamic with the new mutants being way more interesting and believable once she's not a member of the team anymore? Because that happens again. I mean, she's not really a team player. She works best as a recurring visitor. Yeah, well, that's true. And they finally decide, well, no, she's actually got to go home. And they get her back just in time for Magneto to port in and be like, well... Magma reappeared at home in a burst of teleportation energy. Obviously, the inner circle sufficiently intimidated the high evolutionary. Victory again. Aren't you glad you all stayed home and stayed safe? And right. the Newtons are like, oh, yeah, totally. Totally. Ah, yep. oh, kids. Everyone in this comic makes such bad life choices, and I love it so much. They do. Now, uh, we actually are going to go into the secondary story in this issue a little bit more than we have in other ones because it's pretty cool. Right, because it's relevant to the plot and because it's one of Miles' very, very favorites. So for some damn reason, this tiny story just has stuck with me ever since the first time I read it. We'll go over it quickly. It's basically Mirage at the Xavier Mansion flying on Brightwind, her Asgardian Pegasus, just to get some air. And playing with her new powers. And this is actually the first thing you told me about when you were telling me about the New Mutants long, long, long ago and trying to describe her powers was this scene. Oh, really? Awesome. it It was the thing with the car. Yeah. Well, okay, so she's playing with her powers and she's like, hey, I wonder what Brightwind would like. And so she uses her powers on him to now physically manifest a sweet, sexy lady pegasus in the sky. Which he immediately throws Danny to go off in pursuit of because horses, as we all know, are total dicks. Yeah. uh, Seriously, they're so awful. So she's sort of in the mud on the ground, mostly okay, a little banged up. And she's like, okay, crap, I wasn't supposed to be out to begin with, and now I can't get back nearly as early as I thought, so Magneto's going to be pissed. So I'll just manifest my greatest desire again. Sports car. I want a fancy sports car. And she does, in fact, make one. Full tank of gas, keys in the ignition, and starts to drive back home. When she is promptly pulled over by a cop, because apparently racing a Porsche through the back streets of Westchester or Salem Center or whatever with an obviously fake license plate gets you in some degree of trouble here. Yeah. And so she's asked for her license and realized that she left it at home because you usually don't bring your driver's license around when you're riding your winged horse. You should, though. You probably should. Yeah. And so she manifests a driver's license, at which point the Porsche disappears. Because, you know, she can only have the one thing going on at once. Speaking of which, Brightwind is probably off somewhere really confused and frustrated. Probably, yes. Serves him right. That's right. Jerk horse. And so she also realizes, wait, this has my real information on it. That's not good. So she quickly changes it so that her name is Pocahontas and she's from Valhalla, New York. The cop is nonplussed by this He assumes correctly that the driver's license is obviously fake. Also, the car has just disappeared. Also, he lives in the same town as the Xavier School and so presumably just has to deal with a lot of horrible, surreal shit in his day-to-day life. And so he starts muttering about aliens and eventually Brightwind shows up, menaces the police car, and Mirage flies away on Brightwind, leaving a very confused cop who presumably his very view of reality has just been shattered. I feel so bad for that guy. Poor guy. I mean, he's really just like kind of trying to do his job. And no, no, flying horses. Yup. 
she does decide at this point that maybe she should have something a little more subtle to have manifested all the time so her powers don't accidentally trigger, so she takes the spirit lance and turns it into a tiny spirit lance pendant, which, you know, not bad. That's fairly sensible. So, yeah, really short little story, but I just love the hell out of that for some reason. I don't know why. And that takes us to the Uncanny X-Men's part in the Evolutionary War. This is a story called Resurrection. It is drawn by Art Adams, drawing everyone with really spectacular hair. Not like Alan Davis hair, but man, I, I think Storms goes almost to her feet in this. And in fact, we open with Storm, who is rocketing through the tiny town in Australia where the X-Men are currently shacking up. And Longshot, who has hollow bones and is hanging out in his underwear, is pulled up into the updraft. Yeah, like from his window in the building they're staying in. And so Dazzler, who it seems like was maybe in the same room and is wearing Longshot's leather jacket and underwear, which would uh, add credence to that theory. Dang, X-Men. Okay, so what do I do? How do I save him? I know I will use my light powers to blast the ground, propelling myself upward and tackle Longshot in the air, giving him enough weight to not get pulled away into the sky. Ah, the patented Cyclops technique of awkward not quite flight. Exactly. So I'm going to admit something kind of personal here, which is that, you know how everyone can kind of pinpoint one of the moments when their sexuality awakened? Like for a lot of people, it's Labyrinth with David Bowie. For me, I'm pretty sure it was Dazzler in this scene right here and the implication that she and Longshot had probably just gotten done having sex. Like this just opened an entire world to very small miles. Aw. Yeah. For me, it opened an entirely different world because I read it much, much later in life and developmentally. And to me, it mostly opened a world of intense concern for Longshot because when you think about it, like he's really fragile. He's got hollow bones. He is running around with like Rogue and Storm. And Storm's powers go haywire pretty regularly. And Longshot is basically surviving. Like, the, literally the only thing keeping him alive are his perpetual good intentions because his luck powers are reliant on those. Like, if he ever stops being entirely altruistic, he's just going to die in like five minutes. I think you're right. I never thought about it that way. And then Dazzler's line when she rescues him is great, though, which is, you know. Since every girl you've rescued has fallen head over heels for you, I figured I'd give the role a try, see if I'd get just as lucky. And Art Adams, who's drawing this issue, draws some mean bedroom eyes, let me tell you. Now, Storm is still just headed away like a bat out of hell. The X-Men, specifically Madeline Pryor and her fancy future Reaver computers, managed to plot Storm's probable course, which lands her in the middle of Antarctica. And so they figure middle of Antarctica, Storm's heading there urgently. Hey, Savage Land, which of course is the dinosaur prehistoric land in the middle of Antarctica. So they teleport over, but there's a catch. The Savage Land is gone. It's just straight up missing. Yeah, it's like this blasted wasteland of ash and bone and little bits of charred tree, as far as they can see. Longshot uses his psychometry with Psylocke kind of amplifying to the rest of the crew. And what they find out is that the Savage Land just burned, completely wiped out all of the animals there, all of the plant life, and the indigenous human population, including the lady who Colossus shacked up with once. Now, to recap, the X-Men were here way, way, way back when, during their sort of world tour era, after they fought Magneto in the volcano base. There was a group of people in the Savage Land called the Fall People, who were sort of prehistoric-y, tribally folks. And it was kind of great, and everyone flirted a lot, and Cyclops had an existential crisis at the discovery that he could grow a pirate mustache. And so Colossus especially is super bent out of shape about this, because Nereal was really special to him, this woman that he was involved with there. Now, while they are figuring out what's going on in Savage Land, there's someone else there too, the High Evolutionary. He is strolling around, exploring the blasted out savage land we find out that his goal is actually in this case to restore it yeah he's kind of a good guy ish in this issue well kind of 
but he's not going to get very far because immediately enormous metal hands come up from the ground and clamp around him. Well, I wasn't expecting that. You know, yeah, we were expecting, what, a pterosaur in tiny jean shorts. That's usually it, yeah. That's that's a consistent thing to expect in the Savage Land. Now, these big metal hands are quickly revealed to belong to a dude we would be familiar with if we read Marvel Universe things that were not just X-Men. He's a big celestial robot called Terminus, and the X-Men promptly show up to help the evolutionary fight him. Or just to fight him. I don't think they really know that they're helping the evolutionary out. Yeah. But man, some of this dialogue, like, I think we mentioned in the last episode that Storm finally feels like she's back personality-wise. Your presence, your very existence is an obscenity to Mother Earth, a violation which shall not go unpunished. You have sown the wind, monster. Now reap Storm's whirlwind. That is awesome. And then she smashes him halfway through a mountain. And so the X-Men and the High Evolutionary are hanging out and kind of catching up on what's up. And like I said, the evolutionary comes off pretty well right now. But as this is going on... He tells the X-Men that he wants to restore the Savage Land. They send Havoc off to help him because Havoc's kind of useless. And meanwhile, Longshot falls through a hole in reality with a point, which is objectively the cutest sound effect. Sound effects are hard to do right. I appreciate the way they're done in this book. It's a good one. The specifically best use of it is in a Hellboy story where it's the sound made when a little tiny serpent sprouts bat wings. Excellent. I did not know that. Yeah, it's lovely. It's a Craig Russell story, and it involves Hellboy fighting a vampire in Prague. Good, 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 good. It might just be the vampire of Prague, actually. But yes, so Longshot has just vanished. The High Evolutionary has just gone off to introduce Havoc to his uh, assistant, Zala, who may look familiar to people who have read the previous Savage Land story. She's Zaladane. She's evil. Yes, Havoc doesn't know that, of course. So Wolverine is helping the freaked out Dazzler look for Longshot and falls through a hole in reality himself. Storm notices that her red crystal cameo, which she's now got, is glowing. She holds it up. It opens a portal in the sky, and a giant white wolf face comes through. Now, if you have read the not particularly classic, Classic X-Men number 22... Specifically, it's backup story. Then you would be familiar with this. So, okay, real quick. Classic X-Men were reprints of Claremont's early X-Men that were coming out concurrent to the book at the time. They all had backup stories. Incidentally, a lot of you have written in to ask when and how we're going to cover these, and the answer is probably pretty sporadically, like we are right now. And so the backup stories were usually little things that were going on that were related to the main Claremont stories at the time. And then there was classic X-Men 22, in which Storm saves a sexy lady from a giant undersea crocodile and wakes up on an interdimensional flying magical city on the back of an enormous wolf, where they run around being sky pirates for a while. So that happened, and Storm has apparently been carrying around this red crystal cameo that Marin, the leader of the Sky Pirates, gave her so they would always be connected since then. It just hasn't, you know, been mentioned. Yeah, but can we talk about this for a minute? Can we talk about how there is just an awesome flying wolf with an enormous air pirate city on its back and the fact that this exists in the Marvel Universe and it's a thing and also I want to go there? You know how we were talking about doing Mad Libs for the High Evolutionary's origin story in the cold open? Like, I kind of feel like this is narrative Mad Libs. It's like, okay, Savage Land and Space Robot and City on the Back of a Dog, because why not? Because it's a High Evolutionary story and so it's just every random goddamn thing you can think of. It's also a Claremont annual and they do have a history of being awesomely bizarre. That is true. So... The X-Men head through the portal onto the ship, and they discover that missing X-Men are there. The fall people are, again, the indigenous human population of the Savage Land, and they include Nereel, who was Colossus's brief lady friend. And I really like what's going on here, because Nereel is there, and she's very excited to see the X-Men, and Colossus in particular. And she has a son, coincidentally named Peter. Well, Colossus doesn't know that, but you can tell Longshot knows what the audience quickly assumes, which is that 
this child is in fact Colossus's love child, and he just wants to tell Colossus so much, but he's promised a real he won't, but he really wants to. He's like an excitable child. I love him. The reason this kid is as old as he is, by the way, is that time passes slightly differently for the people on the Magic Flying Wolf City, which has a name, but I can't remember it, and it's never going to be relevant again. And so it's charming. The X-Men are hanging out there. And they've got the power of this flying dog ship city now to go fight Terminus. And so there's an awesome scene of them, like, firing laser cannons off the broadside of the saddle city dog thing at the giant robot. Comics, everybody. They fight it effectively. Rogue borrows Longshot's powers because with them and her strength combined, she can hit it in exactly the right place to knock it open, revealing another long, long, long forgotten X-Men protagonist. This is a guy named Garak. Yeah, Garak was the petrified man who we last saw in the last Savage Land story ages ago. Oh wait, he actually shows up again when the X-Men are in the volcano base, but that's less important. This is as distinct from the other rock guy, the living monolith. Yeah, they're totally different. And yeah, in that one, Garak had been doing some evil stuff, he'd been resurrected by Zaladane, long story, not really important right here. But Storm had not been able to save Garak at the end of that story, so now she's very excited that she can pull him out of the exploding space robot suit that they have just defeated. So that's a thing. He was basically riding in a Jaeger, because why not? Sure. Okay, so they all head back to the High Evolutionaries complex, where the High Evolutionary and Havoc are still hanging out. And where we learn the High Evolutionary's plan that he's going to restore the Savage Land, he determines that he can do this by basically diffusing Garrick into the environment, which Garrick is into because he regrets his super villainous ways and likes the idea of actually getting to do something productive, like become part of a weird little intentional community of dinosaurs and people. And so that happens, and the Savage Land is in fact fully 100% restored. I want to talk about this because it's dumb. Mm -hmm. So the high evolutionary's whole thing, right, is that he goes after evolutionarily viable populations. Right. The whole thing with the Savage Land is that it is at an evolutionary standstill. I mean, the dinosaurs there have been unchanged. For like millions of years. Yeah. Exactly. Which brings me to my theory about what's actually going on with the high evolutionary. Okay. Which is that, you know, we call him the high evolutionary and we assume it's a title like, you know, high priest or whatever. I would posit that it is actually descriptive, that he is just high as a goddamn kite. The entire time. Yeah, like, I mean, think about this. Like, it's such stoner logic. Like, you know, someone saying, but Herbert, like, these are dinosaurs. They haven't evolved in millions of years. Like, they're literally unchanged. That someone makes the savage land interesting. He's like, yeah, but man, dude, but dude, 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 dinosaurs. And have you ever really looked at your robot suit hands? I mean, really looked at them? But like, man... That dinosaur? Dude, that dinosaur is wearing jean shorts. <laughs> this is the best place in the world. Let's just come here and drop a shit ton of acid next summer. This is a surprisingly well-supported theory, I must say. It totally makes sense. Like, all of his weird decisions. You know, the summer that he got really into baby swapping. <laughs> right. I was like, okay, guys. So someone had twins and died? Next person comes up, what if we're just like, hey, hey, free babies. <laughs> Suddenly everything makes sense. Oh, dude, man. Dude, dude, like, what if we built a machine and had a really big lever? And like, if you push it one way, it makes mutant powers go. And if you push it the other way, it makes them go. I like a really big lever. <laughs> So the high evolutionary, there you have it, listeners. I mean, I stand by this theory. It explains the outfit. It explains a lot, yeah. 
I assume he's just got some sort of really super advanced bong that he made the mole people build him. Probably. Before trying to wipe them out. Nah, like you do. But anyway, so the good guys win. The High Evolutionary has restored the Savage Land, which is awesome. And so the X-Men decide, you know, we should wipe the minds of everybody who saw us because we're supposed to be dead. And they do. Like, We'll just leave them with some lingering sense that someone super awesome came and saved them, but not that it was the X-Men. Yeah. And so later when uh, Kazar, you know, the caveman awesome dude, shows up. He's got a tiger friend. He does have a tiger friend. Shows up at the Fall People's new restored village and asks what they've been up to. Nareel, who's now the chieftain of the Fall People, points to a big monument they have with the eight-pointed star that Madeline Pryor designed that is the X-Men's current logo and just says we were saved by Legends. And it's awesome. It is very cool. It's a very cool logo. It is, yes. This Um, one also has sort of crossed spears on it. In the shape of an X, yeah. Yeah. Crossed arrows, at least. Um, So yes, now there is a backup story for this one, which is called I Want My X-Men. It's a Mojo story. We're not going to cover that this episode because it ties very directly to the later story, Mojo Mayhem. So we're going to fold it in with that when we get there. So all of that said, that is the X-Men's participation in the Evolutionary War. It's a weird, weird event with some weird, weird stories, but there's some fun stuff in there. Meanwhile, you've got questions. So we realized after we'd written the outline, actually, Administrator Christina pointed out that this episode was going to be airing on Valentine's Day. You know, we looked at the material we were covering and we decided that genetic manipulation and stoned cosmic forces were actually a pretty good summation of romance in the Marvel Universe. But we are at least going to try to theme the questions very roughly around relationshipy stuff and also the thanks later. So this is our official nod to Valentine's Day. Observe it or don't. You do you. Here's our somewhat forced attempt. So Geek Haven asks on Tumblr, I was wondering if you could tell me when the Cyclops Gene Wolverine love triangle first became a thing. Was that created in the 90s or did the movies make it up entirely? So it actually showed up a bit before that. I think the first intimation that I remember seeing of it is shortly after the Dark Phoenix Saga when Wolverine alludes to having had very strong feelings for Jean. Or even after she comes back as Phoenix the first time earlier when he tries to bring her flowers in the hospital, but then the narrator yells at him until he throws them in the trash. The first time it's really official was actually, speaking of classic X-Men backup stories, in the backup story for classic X-Men number one, which takes place right after the new X-Men show up to fight Krakoa at the beginning of the all-new, all-different era. Wolverine, in this story, meets Jean out in the woods, says he's into her, says he can sense that she's into him too, she says no way. So that's sort of where it became official. It's not going to be actually directly addressed, I believe, until Inferno, right? Yeah, when the X-Men and X-Factor finally meet up after all this time. In the 90s, it was just a constant backbeat, most notably when Wolverine kind of got over it enough to secretly protect Scott and Jean's wedding from Sabretooth in a very charming scene. It did definitely have a massive resurgence following the first movie, though, and uh, the height of that was probably in Grant Morrison's run when Cyclops and Jean's relationship was falling apart and Jean and Wolverine hooked up right before she died. GPAC3 on Tumblr asks, It seems like you two usually agree, but when you don't, that Miles likes it and Jay doesn't. Are there any examples of things Jay likes, but Miles doesn't? Definitely the movie Quills. Yeah, so I like a lot of stuff, but I have trouble distancing myself from a certain flavor of disturbing. Like, I like disturbing stuff a lot of the time, so, I mean, Silent Hill is my favorite video game series. But that one just kind of got me. It just made me feel weird and not okay about the world. See, I think it's about meta narrative, which obviously is my thing. But, um, opera. I like opera. You, as far as I know, are pretty much indifferent to it. I mean, I don't really have any experience with it, but yeah, I haven't really sought it out. Uh, Same with hip-hop, you know? You did dig Hamilton, though, so, you know, progress. Uh, Well, I mean, everyone digs Hamilton. Because it's amazing and objectively perfect. (laughs) So, while you're more of a critical reader than I am, I think we do tend to actually like the same things. Uh, Well, or at least to like things in similar volume. 
Yeah. I think on the show, we sort of exaggerate each of our leanings for the sake of point-counterpoint, like me liking a lot of stuff and Jay being super critical. So um, L. Collins, who does Intuit and Hard Times podcasts, has this theory about partner podcasts, you know, with two hosts and that there's always a face and a heel. Oh, like in like wrestling. wrestling? Yeah. Which I think kind of definitely plays out with us. Uh, you are definitely the face in this relationship because you're really good at sort of the wide-eyed enthusiasm. And I really just kind of enjoy playing the prickly contrarian. <laughs> you do it well. <laughs> and honestly, I mean, that's pretty true of us in real life, too. It's just that we exaggerated a little bit here for that point counterpoint. Mm-hmm. Now, this is an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from a variety of fictional characters. In the spirit of the holiday, I believe I am turning things over today to Dracula, specifically to Sexy Dracula. Halloween? Ha! Halloween is for werewolves. I, Dracula, know that it's Valentine's Day that truly deserves celebration. That festival of carnal pleasures and historic decapitation. Dracula believes in tasting the hot romance throbbing through young and succulent veins every day of the year. But today, more than any other, the halls of Castle Sexy Dracula are strewn with rose petals and the sharpest of thorns. Come, shaken angel and Cade. Let the X-Men and their friends spend their time saving dinosaurs with a high evolutionary. Tonight, we've got other plans. Richland Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of additional content, episode companion posts, fan art, recaps, and much more. Our show is totally listener-supported and ad-free. That's made possible by our amazing Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become one if you're not already, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, we'll be heading back to the early 80s, crossing the Atlantic, and attempting to survive the Jasper's Warp. As we check out Alan Moore's formative take on Captain Britain. Captain Britain.